Well, our sermon passage today comes from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And as you are turning there, see, I'm going to give you a head start today. I'm going to actually finagle this microphone uh, stand so that I can actually wave both hands the way I like. To. I don't want to have one hand occupied. The only problem with that is now I've got to stand still, but we'll make do. John 12, verses 12 through 19, continue in our series through the Gospel of John. I've titled this message today, Jesus Great and Lowly. Jesus Great and Lowly. Let's look there together in John 12, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you now as always for your word. We do believe it is that, that when we open the scriptures, that you speak as they are spoken. We know the potential they have just to be Words on a page, a dead letter to dead hearts, and yet you quicken our hearts to hear and to understand the truth in them and the life that they contain. Lord, we come knowing you know every heart here, every life, every need that we have, and the word you want to speak into those needs. And so we pray you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today? In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, this is a, a very familiar passage to students of the Bible, uh, maybe also somewhat familiar to those who attend church in the Easter and Christmas seasons only, or most often. In other words, even people who aren't in church much of the year, if they're in church around the Easter season, this may be one of the passages they often hear, uh, probably more often read and preached on um, on Palm Sunday. Because we're going through 
uh, this series through the Gospel of John. We arrived here a couple of weeks ahead of schedule, but that's actually going to be wonderful for us as we, uh, from this passage on, enter into Holy Week, the last week of Jesus. And so um, that, that'll just be instructive to us in a variety of ways. But it's a familiar passage that Jesus enters Jerusalem for his last week on earth. And I mentioned, I think, a few weeks back that what's uh, sort of noteworthy and interesting about that is that we're, we're just barely beyond halfway through the Gospel of John. About 60% of the way through. 40% of his Gospel tells about the events of the last week of Jesus' life. Um, so that's, again, helpful perspective in probably a number of ways, the significance of that last week in particular, because all of his life and all of his ministry were heading to the cross. Not by mistake or afterthought, but by very much by God's providential sovereign design. Uh, but this is referred to, even probably if you're reading uh, from a Bible, you see the heading that says the triumphal entry, very likely. It's referred to that way as his triumphal entry, and it would turn out to be triumphal, but not in the way that most of the people in the crowd here that we're reading about would have imagined. It was actually far more triumphant because he triumphed over not just the Romans, or the oppressors they had been afflicted by at different times in their history. He triumphed over Satan and sin and death itself. It was far more triumphant than they would have imagined, but also far more tragic. In an, in an inconceivable way, uh, an inconceivable twist of irony that uh, he would be mocked, tortured, spat upon, and executed without even putting up a fight. That is not the sort of hero most of this crowd, I would venture to say, is shouting praises to in this passage we just read about. When he enters Jerusalem, they have no conception that this mighty deliverer will be dead by the end of the week in a humiliating way and that he wouldn't even put up a good fight, so to speak. An incredible, inconceivable twist of irony, but triumphal nonetheless. That was the path to victory. It is, it is just upside down from the way the world would ever think about it and the way many of us, even who know the story, the way it's upside down from the way we would think about it or the way we'd be willing to operate in our own lives. The path to victory for this Savior, great and lowly. We saw in the weeks preceding this um, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It's made uh, reference to here in this passage. You remember um, that that was the last straw for the Jewish leaders. He raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, the people looking on are beginning to tell about it. And they're like, look, we, we, can't, we can't put up in this. If we let him go on like this, you know, everybody's going to follow him. And so the high priest declared that it was better for everyone if Jesus died so that one man would die 
and the nation would be preserved. The concern is that the Romans are going to come in and sort of meddle in their affairs and uh, sort of put the clamps down on them if there's a, some revolt or uprising stirred up by this Messiah figure that everybody's talking about. And so they say it's better for one man to die for the whole nation. And you remember that what he intended was that they could just kill this one disruptor and quiet any concerns about the Romans. What God intended was that he would prophesy something he didn't even understand. That Jesus would indeed be one man who would die for a nation, but not just the nation of Israel, but for one people who would be made out of all the peoples of the earth, all those who would trust in Christ. He's making that prophecy in his uh, ignorance. I mean, dark, dark ignorance. He is prophesying about the very work that Jesus is going to do. And so that those, those were sort of the themes around it, just immediately following the resurrection of Lazarus. And we see those themes emerge again in verses 17 through 19 here. It says that, that those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead went and told others about it. You can imagine you might have done the same thing if you saw somebody raised from the dead. You'd probably tell others about it too. Nobody, was, no, nobody would top that story, right? You know how that goes sometimes. You go tell a story and then somebody says, well, let me tell you about the time I... Nobody would say, well, let me tell you about the time I can one-up y'all on that one. They, they told that story and, uh, enthusiastically and it spread. And it was primarily those who had either seen or heard of those events that went out to meet him as he approached Jerusalem. John is the only gospel writer who sort of gives us that little detail because we, we think maybe apart from that of the crowd uh, being just everybody who's in Jerusalem there for the Passover. They go out to meet him and, you know, you, you've heard the, the saying that the same crowd who's crying Hosanna, Hosanna was crying crucify him uh, at the end of the week. It, it wasn't the same crowd. The, the crowd in Jerusalem, well, at least the crowd in Jerusalem was far bigger than that. I mean, there were uh, hundreds of thousands, or even I think just Josephus, the Jewish historian, estimated you know, a couple of million people would, uh, would come through Jerusalem during the season of Passover. However many it was, we don't even have to get close to know. It was an enormous crowd of people, and uh, some of them went out to meet Jesus and to sort of enter Jerusalem with them. It's, it's made up primarily of, or mobilized primarily of, uh, by those people who knew about or saw the story of his raising Lazarus from the dead. That was the crowd we're talking about. And you see, in, again, in verse 19, the, the Jewish leaders sound even more exasperated than they were before. You remember in chapter 11, uh, verse 48, they had said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come away and take, uh, take, come and take away both our place and our nation. In verse 19, the Pharisees are more or less saying, see, I told you so. They say, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world's going after him. Just like we said, if we let him go on, everybody's going to believe, look, the whole world is going after him. They're just exasperated by that. But it's in that setting, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, that we see 
uh, that the crowd welcomes Jesus as a great deliverer. And Jesus presents himself as a humble and lowly Savior. And I, I want us to sort of unpack this so we see both of those images. They're actually given to us uh, quite clearly and explicitly to, to paint this contrast for us. But we see the crowd welcoming Jesus as a great deliverer. When we say Jesus, great and lowly, the crowd definitely amplifies the great part of it. And we see it in two ways, one by the palm branches, the other by the shouts that they offer. But the palm branches we read about there in verses 12 and 13. And again, this is familiar if we've been uh, only to church on Palm Sunday and Easter. That the next day, the large, uh, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. A few weeks ago, we read about Jesus in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. You may remember that encounter, or maybe not. Sometimes I give you credit for, uh, you know, listening and paying attention and such. And so you just, if you don't, just keep, keep that to yourself. But uh, Jesus was at the temple during the Feast of Dedication. Um, that was also called the, 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 the Festival of Lights, or now Hanukkah. It's that, that same celebration that has come down through the centuries. But it was uh, established to commemorate the rededication of the temple during uh, the period of the Maccabees. So it was a couple of hundred years, 150 or so years perhaps before uh, the birth of Jesus. But what had happened was the Seleucids, the, the, this pagan empire had come in and sort of, again, put the clamps down on Jerusalem and they had desecrated the temple. I mean, they made it a place of pergan, uh, pagan worship, just, just defiled it in part, uh, uh, probably just to rub their thumb on them, you know what I mean? Just, just out of spite almost, it seems. But they just totally desecrated the temple and this uprising developed and they drove the Seleucids out of Jerusalem under the leadership of the Maccabees, a family, uh, priests and his sons. And when they drove them out, they had this rededication of the temple and this feast uh, that emerged from that, this feast of dedication. But also they had a parade to celebrate the victory. And uh, that came with music and singing and the waving of palm branches. And it, it became a symbol of triumph. That is to say, and, we, and you read about that in, in, uh, in Revel, Revelation 7-9 as well. There is this... This, this heavenly praise and there's waving of palm branches going on as part of their praise. It is a symbol of triumph just in, in, inherently. And that's, that's part of what they are signaling. In other words, when, when Christ, when Jesus comes in, uh, they, they have this image of that type of deliverer. The same one that drove the Seleucids out would be one who would come and drive the Romans out. That's sort of the, the picture. They, uh, they, I found this interesting little uh, historical tidbit that the, when the Jews revolted against the Romans about 30 years after the death of, of Christ, they uh, minted their own coins and they had palm branches on them as just a message, a symbol of their triumph. 
So they're waving palm branches as, a, as just a declaration, a celebration of the triumph that is to come through the hands of this great deliverer. And we also get that from the various shouts that they offer in verse the second part of verse 13 there. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The word Hosanna, again, we're familiar with, uh, probably exclusively, possibly exclusively from this passage. Now, the word Hosanna literally means save us or deliver us. That they, they declare that as Jesus is riding in. But the words actually come from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. In fact, what I read as a call to worship was the verse right before this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's followed by, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so they sort of, as they, as they cry out to him, that word save us, translated in the Psalms that way, is the Hebrew word, Hosanna. Or it's, it's in, in Aramaic it became Hosanna, but it is basically that, Hoshiana in Hebrew. That is translated, save us, we pray, O Lord. They're, they're sort of calling upon that whole psalm of praise to God and of, of what he will do for his people. And then he'll, he'll deliver them through the hands of the one who will come. And so the crowd is welcoming a great deliverer. But Jesus presents himself as a humble and lowly savior. He is great for sure. Again, greater than anybody can imagine. But he presents himself as humble and lowly. Verses 14 and 15 say Jesus found a young donkey and rode into the city on it. And that that was a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. It actually uh, cites that or, or draws from that in verse uh, 15 there. But I want to read Zechariah verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. So you get the full sense of what it is that John is referencing here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loudly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah then had, had prophesied that their Messiah would come Riding on a colt, he would be humble, and that he shall speak peace. I have all ideas. In fact, we have reason uh, to infer from the scriptures in a variety of places that the crowds welcoming Jesus as Messiah aren't looking for somebody humble and seeking peace. They're looking for somebody mighty. And that, that'll sort of be the challenge question for us at the end of this as well. 
even though we know that this is true about Jesus, how much do we embrace the humble and the lowly part of who he is and who he's called us to be? I'm going to ask you that question again in a few minutes. And verse 16 says the disciples didn't make the connection at first. And Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, and they don't, they don't make the connection at first between that and this Zechariah prophecy and kind of what he's communicating through all that. It's not likely, as I said, that the crowd did either. But the donkey was a sign of peaceful intentions, and Zechariah 9 uh, hints at that, or, or maybe more than hints at that too. But it just was that, that that was somebody riding on a donkey had peaceful intentions. A great warrior, like the one the crowd had in mind, would not come riding into the city on a donkey. Uh, a donkey would be used by somebody, maybe like a priest or a merchant, even a, an important figure, but who came with peaceful intentions. It's like somebody coming, you know, with their with their hands raised or something like that, the signal, I'm, I'm harmless, I'm not, I don't intend to do anything, you know. It kind of conveys that. A warrior would come riding on a war horse or possibly marching with his army, even out in front of his army. And we think of pictures like that. I mean, you, you think of Napoleon on a horse or George Washington on a horse. You couldn't picture either one of them on a donkey. And if you did, it wouldn't have the same message, would it? And if we're honest, we would not have the same kind of respect, probably, or admiration. There would be something even unspoken, sort of unconscious within us that would sort of resist that a little bit. It just doesn't match. It's supposed to be a horse, even a white horse, right, that rides in. You'd never heard of a cavalry of any army storming the battlefield on donkey back. Right? And, Je and Jesus does this very much on purpose, not just to fulfill the uh, a prophecy, but because of what that communicates. And it's not only a donkey, but the, a young donkey, the colt of a donkey. Like he is literally lowly as he rides in. This is a low rider without any cool factor, you know. Probably has to bend his knees even, or possibly have, would have to bend his knees to even ride that low. As uh, my wife and I were, were talking about this passage, uh, she said, you know, the, a, a colt of a donkey is like the tricycle or something you're riding in on, right? I mean, this is about as low and, and lowly as, as you could ride on. And so we might, again, we might picture in our day, our hero figure would come riding in on a Harley Davidson with a, with a leather jacket, right, and his aviator glasses. This is more the picture of riding in, uh, wearing a cardigan, and riding a scooter. In other words, it is just the, the, the image of that, it sort of takes away the mystique of power and dominance and so forth. He presents himself as lowly and humble as their deliverer. Now, we know that to be true in the abstract. Again, we're familiar with this passage. Um, we know that it's true about 
about Jesus, that he was born into a family of meager means, right? Uh, Poor status and sort of disreputable circumstances with them not even, his his mother gets uh, pregnant before they're even married. uh, they, They live in sort of an outlying area, a nowhere kind of town. They're nobody to speak of. I mean, that his, that he, he, he starts out from a lowly status and he uh, lives among people, embraces people who are lowly in their own station and so on. We know this. In other words, that, that particular part isn't really revelatory to us. But the, the question for us to really wrestle with is that how much do we really like the humble and lowly Christ? And see, not in the abstract, not in the abstract, because we don't have any problem accepting that in the abstract. How much do we like the idea of following a humble and lowly Christ in his humility and lowliness? You see, in America, we actually, somebody who is sort of 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 low station in life, we don't have any problem with it. In fact, we kind of admire the common man, right? Right? And again, there's all kinds of images that we attach to that. Uh, we, we've, we've got the, the, the built Ford Tough sort of ads, right? The common blue-collar kind of guy with calluses on his hands and a $50,000 truck. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, and you think back even to the, the Marlboro man who was the, this rugged guy um, and so on. We love that kind of image of the common man. But our version of him is strong and independent. It's a John Wayne kind of figure, right? How much do we really like a humble and lowly Christ? How willing are we? The follow-up question would be, how willing are we to be a humble and lowly church? That is, as his people, the church is supposed to manifest his presence on the earth. We are, we are uh, some visible expression of Christ on the earth. How much do we like the idea of being humble and lowly? And not just humble in res- with respect to God. Not just humbling ourselves before an almighty God. That, comparatively speaking, is the easy part. Although we have plenty of trouble with that one too. The rub comes when we look in all the places where we're told to be humble and lowly in relation to other people. To humble ourselves. To consider others more highly than ourselves. Look out not only for your interests, but also the interests of others. And even as I... uh, Included in my prayer from Ephesians chapter 4. What Paul says is, is the kind of walk, the sort of lifestyle that is worthy of the calling of Christ. That is, that, that just befits the name of Christ that we bear on ourselves when we call ourselves Christian. A walk that is befitting of that is one that is lowly. The, 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 King, the New King James uses these words. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering. Patience is translated otherwise. 
but it feels like long suffering sometimes when you're being patient with, with people, doesn't it? Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I would surmise that especially, we have trouble with that always anyway. Partly because we're just sinners. Uh, partly because it just, it, it, it defies kind of human nature to want to scrap for our own interests and to get ahead and so on and so forth. And it's certainly built into us as Americans to be wired that way. But it, it, it defies our nature. And, uh, and I would say in the last two years, we've gotten a whole lot more practice being scrappy than we have being humble. Right? I mean, the, the, in other words, our, our natural, immediate, instinctive reaction to things is the one that we've expressed a whole lot. Right? Um, and it feels good temporarily to do so. But what the, what the imitation of Christ demands of us is that we actually respond to other people with forbearance, with lowliness, with gentleness, patience. That passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, is one of my favorites, partly because that's difficult for me. Like, I don't, I don't have to... I don't have to look elsewhere in the New Testament to find something that always challenges me to live that way. But he, we know the way the story ends. We know how great his greatness really is. And it far surpassed anything that the crowds were celebrating as he entered Jerusalem. And there awaits us a sort of experience of that, like, again, some of our loved ones have already passed on from this earth and entered the experience of, and some are uh, knocking at that door. But they will, they will experience a measure of just the greatness and glory and the beauty secured in the victory that he won. And all of that one day will be brought to a new heavens and a new earth. It's, be, it's good beyond imagination. He is great and is with a surpassing greatness. But he came that his, his path to greatness was humility of the lowest kind. He said that uh, though he was in the form of God, remember in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to grasp, something to cling to, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That is, he was one with the Father, rightfully possessed all the glories of divinity of, 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 of heaven. He was sort of lived in the fullness and possession of that. But he didn't consider that something to cling to, but he humbled himself by even coming to earth as a man. He humbled himself just by coming to earth. He humbled himself further by becoming a man. 
not only a man, but a man who would die a humiliating death, the lowest kind of death. And it's therefore that God has highly exalted him, it says. Again, which I made mention of in my prayer. It's therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did that happen? It happened by the, by the very lowest kind of lowliness a human being could possibly demonstrate. It, demonstrate because he was a God-man. The path to his greatness was a path of humility. And listen, he died and paid a penalty for our sins so that we didn't have to pay that penalty because we could not pay that penalty. He did not suffer so that we didn't have to suffer. He did not humble himself so that we didn't have to humble ourselves. He didn't do the hard stuff so that we didn't have to do the hard stuff. If you've got any version of Christianity rattling through your brains, it sounds like that, dispose of it because it's not true. It is, it in fact is quite the opposite, we're told over and over again. To humble ourselves, that a Christian walk, that the imitation of Jesus involves a lowly walk in our relationship to other people. That we don't always say what deserves to be said, perhaps, on some, in, in some respect. And what we want to say back to people. We don't retaliate the way that people would retaliate against us, etc., etc., etc. You know kind of what that looks like. But as John said in 1 John, uh, if we say we know him, we ought also to walk as he walked. And he modeled humility and lowliness for us in the most perfect of ways and calls us into it. And we can believe by faith and, and confidently that if we will obey him in that, he will meet that with the power of his spirit. He, he will do his part in that, that, that it is counterintuitive to think that that's the, right, the route to power and transformation, but it is. If we walk as he walked, um, he will move in power as he is apt to move. So however that would challenge you, I would just uh, urge you to embrace it and respond to it as he leads. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for this familiar passage and how glorious it is, how glorious Jesus is made to be in it, and yet how gentle and lowly it is. God, that is challenging to me. And it's challenging to us. And Lord, we admit that we would like to be more humble. We just don't want to be humbled. We like the idea of just at the snap of your fingers being made 
humble and gentle people. But it is, it is much more difficult than that for us. And so, Lord, would you help us by your spirit to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus, whose name we bear, with humility and gentleness and patience, forbearance, a real effort at maintaining unity, that Christ may be glorified in us. Would you urge us and move us one by one, according to your will, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.